Hebrews 11, verses 32 to 40. And as usual, I encourage you to have your own copy of Scripture open, reading along with me as we look at this together. Let me pray for us this morning. Our Father, we do thank you for the Scriptures. We thank you that they are able to make us wise unto salvation. And yet, Lord, we would not search them, thinking that in them they have eternal life without our coming to your son, Jesus Christ, who they reveal. And so we pray that you would reveal him to us and that you would reveal him in us and that, Father, you would um, enlarge our hearts in the knowledge of Christ, that you would enlarge our minds, that you would renew us, that you would make us Christians who are strong in faith, strong in repentance, strong in trust toward the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 32, the writer, having made it um, through redemptive history from creation to the conquest of the land, now writes these words, And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, Obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, it doesn't take long if you turn on your television and you sit down to watch some of the more well-known televangelists or religious Uh, Christian religious men and women that are on the airwaves to see that what they're trying to sell people is a Christianity in which entirely you are victorious and prosperous here and now. I think if you watch these shows long enough, what you would find glaringly absent is any reference to any hardship or trouble or tribulation or persecution. And as I was preparing this sermon and thinking about all the teaching of Hebrews 11, and I was thinking about some of the statements of the great men and women of faith, that, that what they did by their faith, believing the promises of God, how they acted in faith, how they did many miraculous and wonderful things, triumphant things. The majority of this chapter is full of triumph and victory, and you could see how easily that could be, that could be presented as, come to Jesus and you'll have a victorious victorious, triumphant life here and now. Things will go well for you. You'll escape the edge of the sword. Things will go well for you. And then this morning, 
And as I looked at this throughout the week, thinking about this, I, I looked to see how Saeed um, Abedini, the, the um, American Christian who's in prison in Iran, is doing now almost a year later, um, his wife saying he's suffering from internal bleeding from all the beatings um, as they try to force him to renounce his faith in Christ. And I thought, I wonder how many people would come to a Jesus who says... Come to me, and your life very well may turn out like Saeed's. Um, I would actually say that's not far from being the norm in most parts of the world, unbeknownst to probably most of you, most of us. Um, But when we come to Hebrews 11, we're told very emphatically about the outcome of faith in this life. The outcome of faith in this life. Now, what's interesting is in the chapter, and if we miss this, we would miss everything. In this chapter, the hope of all of the saints that are outlined in redemptive history is the hope of being in a city that has foundations. They are constantly said not to look for a city here, not to look for a kingdom here, not to look for safety here, not to put their confidence here in the here and now, not to store up for themselves treasures, but they were moving around looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. They did not call to mind the city out of which they came. They were pressing on. They were living the heavenly life here and now, and they were living it by faith in the promise that a redeemer would come. They were hoping in the coming redeemer who would forgive their sins and secure that inheritance. And Yes, almost all of them suffered great loss, and yes, almost all of them had moments of triumph and victory, but they never, ever, ever bound up their Christian life and testimony in the outcome in the here and now. Now, what I think is interesting is in this chapter, having given us those amazing examples of faith that ought to stir us up to press on together in faith in Christ, what the writer does now at the end in verses 32 to verse 38 is he gives us two outcomes. He tells us in the here and now, the life of faith does have outcomes. There are, there are cause and effect relationships in the here and now. Come to Jesus, and, and in coming to him, there will be an effect on your life here and now. And what the writer does is he very quickly, because he doesn't want to be a long-winded preacher, says in verse 32, what, what more shall I say? The time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets— you get the sense that the writer wants to take his readers through the whole of the Old Testament, but that knowing that he couldn't do that, that he would exhaust them, he quickly rushes through that, and then he gives them what we're going to say is the outcome of faith. And what we're going to see this morning first is the writer's going to set out the triumphs of faith, then he's going to set out the sufferings of faith, and then he's going to set out the perfection of faith, the triumphs of faith, the suffering of faith, and the perfection of faith. And notice in verse 32 that he tells us about four of the judges, and then he tells us about David, and then he tells us about Samuel, and then he mentions all the prophets, and he says in verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Now, he is essentially going through all of the outcomes of these men's faith in this life. And the first thing we have to see is that the triumphs that these men experienced were not based on anything in them. In fact, what's so interesting is that he picks the judges that he picks. If you went back to the book of Judges and you looked at Gideon, Samson, Barak, and Jephthah, you would find out very quickly Gideon became an idolater at the end of his life. Samson fell to wine and women throughout his whole life. 
Jephthah didn't believe God's promise that he was going to gain the victory, and so he promised God if God would just give him the victory, he would sacrifice whatever passed in front of his house, which was his daughter. But he didn't believe God's initial promise that I'm giving you the victory. And then Barak didn't believe God's promise. And so the victory went to a woman because Deborah said, it's not going to go to you now, even though you'll participate in it in a roundabout way. And so if you read this and you might, you might read those buys and you might say, I'm having a hard time seeing why these people are in the great faith chapter. And here's, I think, the lesson for us. Ian Hamilton puts it so well. He says, heroic faith is not found in heroic people. Heroic faith is not found in heroic people, but people who have confidence in a heroic God. Heroic faith is not found in heroic people, but in people who have confidence in a heroic God. I think John Calvin also helps us when he says, in every saint, something reprehensible is ever to be found, yet faith, though halting and imperfect, is still approved by God. Even though the writer is going to tell us that these men conquered and triumphed by faith, the reality is these men were sinful and weak. They were just like us. They feared the enemy. They feared being defeated. They feared Life itself, they lived too much for self in this world, and yet God had given them faith. And even though there was things that were, as Calvin says, reprehensible in each of them, they had real faith in the coming Redeemer, and they did real, they did real victorious things by faith, even though it was a weak faith. And so the writer wants you, I think, to know, I think he picks them. I've thought about this for years. Why? set out these four. I think he does that because the people to whom he's writing are people who are vacillating. There are people who don't have great, strong, unwavering faith. There are people who are ready to turn, turn away from Christ to go back to Judaism to escape persecution. And I think for people like us, who probably at the drop of a hat would be ready to deny Christ if the right person in the right context puts you in a place where you didn't want to profess him. To a people like us, we need to be reminded that there is triumph and that there is conquering by faith and overcoming, not because of anything heroic in us, but because we have a heroic God. We need to be reminded that we have a heroic God in Jesus Christ. And that he has conquered, and because he has conquered, because he has conquered at the cross, we who vacillate, who are ready to, to downplay our faith in Christ, not to tell others about it, to fear what men might think of us if they see me too associated with the people of God, that we would garner strength from that to say, no, I will believe in Jesus because Jesus has conquered I will overcome my fears. I will overcome what is reprehensible in me by faith. I will trust him, I will go to him, and I know that he is the heroic God that gives the victory. And I think, even when you look at Samson, it's interesting, at the end of his life, you almost expect he's had his eyes gouged out, he's, who knows how horribly abused he's been by the Philistine lords, and you expect that Samson's going to say, oh Lord, vindicate your great name on your enemies, but he says, let me pull this temple down because of what they did to my eyes. And so even there, even in the last 
act of Samson. And there was triumph. God heard him. He trusted in God. They were God's enemies. God was destroying his enemies by having Samson pull down the temple of Dagon. But even there, there was a vacillation. There was weakness. And yet, the writer of Hebrews says that those men, through faith, conquered kingdoms. They conquered kingdoms. So I think, I think we need to be reminded that the Christian life is not all suffering. In fact, when you look at some of the men in the history, they suffered, yes, in, in giving up things, in, in losing their lives for Christ, but they didn't suffer like Saeed suffering right now in an Iranian prison. They didn't suffer like that. They didn't suffer the torment and the physical abuse that he's suffering and so many Christians have. But they suffered, but they triumphed. And there was triumph. There was evident victory in their lives. And I think the writer is holding that out and saying, by the same faith and the same Christ, there can be victory in your life. God can use you to spiritually subdue kingdoms. You know, it was true of John Knox. I I don't think we attempt to subdue kingdoms. I think that would be a big mistake. But God used John Knox to subdue Scotland. His great prayer was, oh God, give me Scotland or I die. And at least once in the New Covenant era, God answered a prayer like that and established the gospel and the Reformed faith in Scotland for many, many centuries. So I think the writer is saying to us, look, one of the outcomes is victory. One of the outcomes, notice what he says, escaping death. They stopped the mouths of lions. I think there clearly it's, it's Daniel. They quenched the power of fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walking around in the flames. By faith, they were looking forward to the God of Israel. They were trusting him. What's interesting about that, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not trying to quench the flame. I think that's interesting. They're not trying to quench the flame. They actually say to Nebuchadnezzar, O King Nebuchadnezzar, if our God wants to save us, he will. And if he doesn't, he won't. So throw us in the fire. That was the response of faith, not we will conquer this flame because we have enough faith. That wasn't their response. Their response was not trying to gain triumph and victory and deliverance. Their faith was seen in trusting that one day they would ultimately escape that flame in glory because of Jesus Christ. And so the writer is setting out these these magnificent triumphs to to strengthen us and saying, look, God delivers his people. God oftentimes uses his people in great ways. And notice in verse 35 that the writer is climaxing and he actually mentions the widow of Zarephath. and, and And I think the widow who Jesus raised her son from the dead, women received back their dead by resurrection. I mean, there is nothing more supernatural than the resurrection from the dead. Women received their dead back by faith. They believed God can do this. God has promised resurrection life. And at least twice in human history, they received their dead back. Now, I think what's interesting is the writer then turns. Notice in verse 36, he turns. It's not all triumph. It's not all... Come to Christ and your life will be victorious. And actually, notice what the writer says there in verse 36. He says, Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. Now here, and and you might miss this, just before this, 
He said they escaped the edge of the sword in verse 34. By faith, they escaped the edge of the sword. Now, in verse 37, they were killed with the sword. By faith, they escaped the edge of the sword. By faith, they were killed with the sword. What's up with that? Does the writer of Hebrews not know that he's contradicting himself? You just told us by faith, we can escape the edge of the sword. And now you're telling us by faith, we can get killed by the sword. What is God trying to tell us? I think God is trying to tell us here, secondly, that there is suffering of faith. That faith sometimes triumphs, sometimes suffers. Usually it's a mixture of the two. And I think that we are to grapple with that. And we are to get our hearts right so that when that happens, and I I can tell you this not from experience, but because I know the scriptures teach it, and I know it's the testimony of everyone who has ever suffered for Jesus Christ and has not denied the faith. Saeed, as he is being beaten in Iranian prison, is not denying his faith. He has internal bleeding. He is probably on the brink of death. I prayed this morning that God would either deliver him or take him home. And yet he is not denying his faith. When that happens to you, If that happened to you, that only happens because you're preparing yourself now in the here and now for that sort of outcome of suffering of faith. If we're not preparing ourselves now, if we're not saying now, I know that I've decided to follow a savior who will be who was reproached and mocked and beaten and crucified and who says, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. A servant is not greater than his master. If they hated me, they'll hate you, too. If we are not now preparing ourselves for that, when that time comes, we will most certainly not be able to walk through that. And so the writer wants us to know that ultimately it's not in the here and now, it's not in the here and now that the outcome matters most. I think the big mistake we make in life, now I make it, we all make it, is we look at our circumstances today And we say, why am I in this predicament today? Why is my marriage the way it is today? Why is this person such a burden to me today? Why do I have this difficulty today? And we don't look past the circumstance to eternity. And what these these people who, who were sawn into, I think that's the prophet Isaiah, they were killed with the sword, they were homeless, they wandered in dens and mountains and caves, they, they lived these despised and afflicted lives, what enabled them to do that is they look past their circumstances to glory. They look past them to glory. And I think so many people walk away from the faith because they look at their circumstances. I've told you over the past several months about friends I have who have walked away from Christ. And one of them, um, almost on a daily basis, is writing how, how depressed and afflicted he is that all his friends have abandoned him. There's a man that is embracing sin, openly embracing sin he once preached against, and now complaining about the circumstances of his life. And as I thought about him and I thought about this section, it hit me, at least from my perspective, he was looking for happiness in the here and now. And when he didn't find the happiness in the here and now in Christ because of circumstances, He turned to sin, but that sin doesn't make him happy either, but he would rather embrace that sin than be with Christ and know that one day it will be eternal glory and happiness. 
And so if you are the kind of person that gets weighed down by your circumstances, you get weighed down by difficulties, your, your Christian life is not thriving because you get weighed down about what others are caring about you, so, social circles, whatever it is, whatever it is, what we need is to look at these people and say, what was it that enabled them to go through those hardships? And the answer is it was faith in Christ. It was saving faith in Jesus Christ that enabled them to walk through. Faith is the, is the anchor. It's the, the security. It is, it is the, the shield about you that even when you go through the affliction, even when you're beaten like Saeed, you, you persevere. You persevere because you have Christ. It's not faith in some abstract way. It's faith in Christ. You have Christ. And Christ has gone through. Christ has triumphed. You know, this is actually amazing if you think about it. The cross of our Lord Jesus is the greatest example of suffering and affliction for someone who trusted in God. And yet it's also the greatest example of triumph. It is triumph hidden or veiled in suffering. Christ suffers, but in that suffering, he triumphs. And I think for the saints, they understood. Notice, I think there's a little clue here. Notice this. Notice what it says in verse 35, the second part. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. You see, there's triumph veiled by suffering. They were tortured because... They wanted to rise again to a better life. Behind the suffering was triumph because of what Christ had done in his own suffering and triumph at Calvary. Now, I wrote out for you several points to take away from this. Um, what do we take away from the fact that, that if you're going to walk by faith, that could mean triumphs, it could mean suffering in the here and now. What do we make of what the writer of Hebrews tells us? Well, first... We should never seek to manipulate or control our circumstances in order to triumph. This is very important to get. One of the biggest mistakes most people make in life is they try to manipulate their circumstances to solve the outcome. They try to steer the ship to get the outcome that they want. And what I think the writer of Hebrews is telling us is don't do that. Don't try to manipulate your circumstances in order to get victory. Secondly, I think that the writer is telling us we should rest in the fact that faith will ultimately lead all of us to triumph in the world to come. That ultimately, the triumph and the suffering that we see now in the lives of Christians is nothing. It's temporary. Paul says our light affliction, which is but momentary, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. An eternal weight of glory. And so everybody who has faith in Jesus is going to triumph. And it will be better than if you conquered the whole world here and now. If you got every nation and you had everybody looking at you and you were in the best social circles and you had everything you wanted, it would be filth and dust compared to the glory you're going to get in heaven. Nothing. And yet we run after that and we forget this. Again, I want to remind you of that quote by C.S. Lewis. Aim at earth, you get nothing. Aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get nothing. And so I think the writer of Hebrews would have us say that 
we need to rest in the fact that ultimately every one of you will triumph in glory. You will be seen to be victorious for all of eternity with all of the glory and the riches of Christ. Now, three, we should temper our responses to both triumph and suffering since we know these things. I'm a very emotional person. Some of you know that. I get very excited when big things happen. I get excited. I call my friends. My wife makes fun of me. I, I call like six friends to tell them, you know, how awesome whatever just happened was. And then the next day, something hard happens, and I'm like in deep depression. And that's me. That's my life. And I have a friend, a pastor friend, who when the church plant was sort of getting difficult early on, He prayed for me, Lord, I pray that Nick would not be overly excited in the victories and overly discouraged in the trials. And that almost came to me with a word of God power. It's not God's word. It's in God's word. That was very powerful. I think the writer would say, don't be overly zealous for the triumphs and don't be overly discouraged when the afflictions and the trials come. And that's not easy. I can't give you a magic formula. That comes from looking to Jesus. That comes from knowing Jesus, from spending much time in prayer with him, spending much time in his word, encouraging each other now. Don't be overly encouraged by victories. Don't be overly discouraged by trials. Fourth, and this one's going to be hard and you have to listen carefully. We should look at suffering and not simply triumph as a gift from God. We should look at suffering and not merely triumph as a gift from God. A a theologian named David Gooding summed this up so well when he said, Faith is not always seen to be triumphant in this life. It takes greater faith to suffer apparent disaster unvindicated and to go on believing still. The Puritans used to say that, um, and there's a phrase, maybe you've heard this, when God wants to make a man, he breaks a man. And that suffering is the precious gift of God to the saints. It's actually a precious gift to the saints to suffer. That, that success is actually not a gift. Success actually ends up being a stumbling block for most people. It was when David got out of the caves and the dens onto the throne that he committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed Uriah. It was at times of peace and affluence that man's heart gets built up and suffering keeps us humble and suffering keeps us dependent and suffering makes us hope. Notice again what the writer says that they were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. David in Psalm 119 said it's good for me to be afflicted so that I learn to keep your commandments. It's good for me to be afflicted so that I learn to keep your commandments. When God afflicts his people he sanctifies his people. And so through all of those trials, we'll see this next week, by the way, in two weeks, that actually the suffering comes from the chastening hand of our Father often to make us more like Christ. So suffering and not just gift and not just triumph is a gift from God. Um, finally, I want us to just look here in verse 39 and 40 quickly. There is a perfection of faith spoken of. There's a triumph of faith. There's a suffering of faith. There's a perfection of faith. Notice verse 39. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Now, if I was a mean pastor, I would tell you to write these two verses down and go home and try to figure out what they mean. 
And if I was a really cruel pastor, I would tell you to get a lot of commentaries out and read how many different interpretations everybody gives to them. So the next week you'd come back and be like, I have no idea what this means. I think what the writer's saying is that the Old Testament saints persevered in faith in the promises of God that a Redeemer would come, but they never saw him. The something better is Jesus. They never saw Jesus. They never realized that God had indeed fulfilled his promise. In fact, Moses and Elijah appear at the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And in a sense, they are being made perfect with Peter, James, and John. They are getting to see the perfection of God's promises, the the perfect object of our faith, Jesus Christ. They are seeing the Lord Jesus. He was the one that they were persevering in faith unto. He was the one that enabled them to conquer kingdoms and to be sawn in two. He was the one. He was the sole object of their faith, but they didn't see him. God had not fulfilled it. The Old Testament was promised. The New Testament is fulfillment. What does that mean for us? That means that what we read this morning, and this hits me hard. This hits me hard because I know it's not true of my life so often. What we read this morning, we have more reason to see worked out in our own lives now that we look back and see the fulfillment of all things in Jesus Christ. Jesus said this. He said, many kings and righteous men wanted to see what you see, and they were not able to see it. And that he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist, who didn't see the fulfillment of all things. He was beheaded before Jesus fulfills all things. You see the completion of the work of redemption, and that means... Your faith should be able to latch on to Jesus Christ and hold so firmly that as God brings you through the triumphing and the suffering, if this chapter were continued, your life would be pointed out as an example in it. That you would become part of that cloud of witnesses. And that a generation from now would look back and say, man, look what great things God did through them. Look how much they suffered because of their faith in Christ. Look, look. Sinclair Ferguson says about the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11 that he said, it's like Jesus is standing in heaven saying to the angels, look at her, look at her. And the angel's saying, does she belong to you? And Jesus says, when you look at her, you should know that she belongs to me. You should know that he belongs to me by faith. I want to encourage you to really take these things to heart. I want to encourage you to be praying that God would enable you to both triumph and suffer by faith in this life, that you would not put your hope in the outcomes of faith in this life, but that you would hold fast to Jesus Christ and the triumph that is to come in glory. Because at the end of the day, it's by looking past the sufferings, past the victories, past every outcome of this life, unto glory that matters. Because you know what? Jesus said, and I'll close with this, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? 
we are to give up any hope of any kind of outcome in this life and trust wholly in Jesus Christ. We're to trust wholly in Jesus Christ for our salvation and our life and our futures. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we are so weak and feeble. We would probably all confess, Lord, that we are weaker than Samson, weaker than Jephthah, weaker than Barak, weaker than Gideon. Yet we pray, O God, that by your grace you would use us as you use them. We pray that if you call us to suffer, you would give us the faith that endures. We pray for Saeed, even as he is in prison today, that you would deliver him. We pray that you would make your eternal grace and favor known to him. We pray that you would prepare us for such suffering if you call us to it. Make, it, make us faithful and make us persevering in our faith toward your son. Father, draw near to us, we pray, Lord Jesus. Dwell in us. Make us to know that we are yours and that you are ours. We pray these things in your name. Amen.